Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians made possible by Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Welcome everyone. Great to have your company this Thursday morning. I am Brendan Telford. Well, this week on the program, new science that says older people can have their memories restored to that of a 20-year-old. We get the very latest from Age Stage medical and science reporter Damien Flenley. And British science writer Sue Armstrong, a new book, Borrowed Time, she's called it, gives us a fascinating medical and scientific explanation of ageing, why it happens, and what we can do to correct it, pushing back the boundaries of science. Very interesting. All that a little bit later on. But first up, two guests who've joined me here in the RPPFM Bendigo Bank studio, Ryan Rodriguez and Sarah Mitchell of Craig Care Mornington. Team, good to meet you. Welcome to the age stage and delighted that we can talk about your specialisation, palliative care. More of that in just a moment. But firstly to you, Ryan, because congratulations are in order, are they not? Because you've just won national recognition for your end-of-life trajectory planning tool that improves the quality of life for those in their final days. Ryan, this is fantastic endorsement of your work and congratulations. Thank you. So tell me, what is it that you have created? So uh, the tool uh, that was created was basically a tool to help uh, uh, trajectorize uh, residents at the end of their life. Um, we, have been, uh, we have been using the palliative care planning, uh, which was developed by uh, uh, the University of... Uh, In Queensland. Queensland, yeah. That's right. Um, and uh, we found that there was... Uh, an area lacking where we found that we could, could not start it uh, or help a resident's family uh, understand what we are doing. So when we uh, looked into it, we were able to uh, see how uh, we could take this person and their family through this last stages of this person's life. And um, as we were looking at it, we found that there were a few things that were common among people. and. Uh, once uh, I was able to see that, uh, we made a tool to be able to put objective data in, uh, to be able to say that this person is at a particular stage and uh, help the family to process that. Um, and uh, once the family were able to process it, they had a better understanding of what uh, they were going to experience in the next few months or next few years of this person's life. So it's twofold then what you're doing is you're adding a little bit of science into this app but also you're sort of personalizing it to the individual patient's needs as well. Yes. Why um, Ryan has it was it down to you to do this why hadn't it been recognized by somebody sooner do you think? Well, well yeah. no, no, right. no go, go ahead mean, Sarah. The, the information's out there it was that Ryan was trying to develop a simple, effective way that a nurse, a carer, could identify that a resident's needs were changing and communicate that clearly to the GP and to the family and say, based on our experience and based on your um, relative's status on where they are, what they're doing with their meals, um, what their complex care needs are, do they have wounds, do they have reduced mobility, uh, how is their social interaction, their psychological domains, their cognition, um, their medication, what sort of pain do they have, what sort of pain management do they need, and bringing all of that together so we can say based on where mum or dad or 
Auntie Bill, uh, sorry, not Auntie Bill, but Auntie, Auntie Jean Auntie or Anne. Uncle Bill, mm. where they are at the moment, we need to prepare you for the fact that they're starting a palliative journey. And that palliative journey might not be tomorrow or next month, but it might be in three or four months. But we can see that we're on that trajectory. Yeah. Uh, it puts everyone into perspective as well. Um, the, the tool goes through uh, you and I as well. It's not just anybody. Um, so, uh, for example, if um, it is classified into four stages and stage number one is someone like me who's on that stage. And uh, some of the things that uh, um, is encouraged at that is like, have you written up a will? Uh, what are your spiritual beliefs? Uh, what is it that you uh, want to uh, consider or what, how would you like uh, if something had to happen to you tomorrow? What have you thought? Have you put your house in order? Um, and this tool goes through that and um, helps people think about those things. It's an incredibly personal stage in a person's life. And yep. I have great admiration for the pair of you that you get into this area of medicine and care. What drove you in the first place, Ryan, into this palliative care area? And I'm going to ask you the same question in just a moment as well, Sarah. Uh, so I started off my journey as an acute nurse um, and um, I, I used to work in the OR. I was in the operation theater. Um, and um, after I had, uh, I came to Australia and uh, I had a chance to get into aged care. From where? Uh, I'm from India. Okay. So I came into uh, aged care and um, I found that it was very fulfilling uh, in the sense of uh, it gave me a sense of a purpose in these people's lives. Uh, they were people who uh, did not have uh, the kind of uh, uh, luxury that an acute care system has where you know you can uh, push a button and you have 10 people running to uh, you. Uh, you're having more of a personal approach, you're having more of a community approach uh, and you're having a sense of uh, purpose in that like you know uh, you are looking after people who for all intents and purposes are are now reached a stage where they need other people or they depend on other people. And um, for me, that compassion drove me uh, to uh, aged care. What about you, Sarah? What, what was your conviction? What is, what is driving you into this area? I love aged care because it's a chance to bring joy and happiness and look at the bigger picture. Um, I mean, all, all health care is really important but something about being down at our little Craig Care in Mornington um, with our residents and our staff and striving every day to make um, happy days and happy incidental things happen um, and be on a journey with residents and their families to get to know them to share their laughs to see them form relationships with other people because the people in aged care have comorbidities they're there for a reason because they can't be clinically at home or socially they're isolated uh, there are lots of different reasons people are with us um, but it's very very rewarding the little things that happen every day but you are sharing some of the most poignant most dramatic most emotional most psychological moments in a person's life in this in this stage of their life every day someone will say to me um i'm i'm frightened or i'm i'm fearful of what happens or what happens if i get sick and uh it's i like it's 
where we're able to reassure them that we're there that we'll be honest we'll say if you we can't get you better from this that's okay we'll make sure you're comfortable we'll make sure you're not in pain we'll make sure your family's here early what about the philosophic side of this, the religious side? Huh? Yeah, well, cater to their needs. We identify those things really early. All aged care homes do. When you come in, you introduce yourself to a new person that's visiting your facility or moving in for respite or permanent care. It's really important to us to touch base in the early stages with family and say, hey, what are my nurses going to do at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday if mum or dad gets sick? Have you thought about that? Does mum or dad really want to be in hospital? Because 90% of the people in aged care in our facility, everyone has an advanced care plan, and 90% of older people don't want to go to hospital anymore. They don't want to be in a hospital room with interchangeable nurses rotating through, looking at IV tubes and blood tests, and they want and to be in their room. The they want to be in their room with a cup true. of tea and yes. a a familiar staff that comes in and has a chat with them and they want to be able to pop down the corridor and go to bingo or go out on a bus trip. Those things become more, the social importance of those things uh, only heightens as you get older and you, I suppose, reprioritise. But you're also dealing with end-of-life experiences here in many of your patients as well. How do you prepare yourselves individually for that? Does the trajectory tool help you prepare as an individual confronting that? Absolutely. Uh, the trajectory tool is uh, designed uh, for have, or having the health professionals in mind. Um, it is basically taking what a person uh, is on the outside and delineating it to make a health professional be able to address the issues and ask the right questions. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not a tool that's going to solve it, but it empowers the health professional to be able to uh, use the information or ask the right questions to the family. They have the answers, if, but people don't usually, I find, uh, don't ask the questions because it's one of those most confronting periods of a person's life and a family's uh, life. I always say this, I say there are two things that always happen in a person's life, which is sure. One's their birth and the second's death. Um, at birth, I, I, we weren't present with this person, but at their death, we are there. And it is uh, one of those journeys which happens only once in a family's life. And if it goes badly or if it doesn't go well, they will remember that experience for the rest of their life. And if we can make it as comfortable as possible, not just for uh, the residents, but also for the family, we have achieved the goal. We have taken the uh, stigma of death and uh, dying away from uh, this process, which is natural to everybody, but is uh, looked upon as a failure by sometimes the medical field, sometimes by the family, the guilt that goes along with it is second to none. So how do you deal with the stress and trauma of, of, of a patient that you might have grown to love and get to know over those um, last few months? Um, well, deaths, I don't think that the death is always a bad experience. What the tool and what our work and what we strive for has enabled, like Ryan said, us to prepare the family to prepare. And so the journey is um, more organized 
and, and structured and we're able to change the things that we do to meet the residents' needs better. Um, we worry less about the little things, like, you know, does it matter if they have that medication now? Does it matter if you don't get out of bed? All that really matters is being happy and comfortable. And so refocusing on that, and we've had some incredible experiences with families over the last two, three years at the facility. Um, we had an experience last year where um, a gentleman got um, had some adverse events and got unwell we worked with his doctor we spent a lot of time with a lot of extended family and in the end that resident's last days were actually shared in our dining room sitting in a chair surrounded by 20 relatives who were playing the piano and singing songs on the with a guitar and as hard for the family as that journey was they were together as a family and they were all aware of what was happening and able to be part of it and experience it. I've had families that have come in and sat around a bedside together um, in large groups and we've been feeding them <laughs> because they've stayed all day and having them sitting together talking with an iPhone, um, recording the conversations and the memories that they'd had over time with mum or dad, you know, there. And it makes the journey... Um, People recover better socially. It's not as angst-driven when you're together with others. And, but what about you, Sarah? Oh, yeah. me? Oh. But you personally as well, what do you derive from it? Do you, can you emote from that? Can you think... Um, I love it when we get it right. I love it when it's, when it's beautiful like that. When you're able to walk home or go home at the end of the day and know that you've done your absolute best for someone and for someone's families and that they're happy that they were cared for and looked after and comfortable, then that's all I need. What a, what a wonderful thing. Just to remind you, you're tuned up to RWPFM, your local radio station. We're here in uh, Wilson's Road. We're speaking to Sarah Mitchell and Ryan Rodriguez. They're both from Craig Care Mornington. They're doing some amazing work in the area of palliative care. We don't discuss this enough, I don't think, in our day-to-day -day life. It's all about here, now, it's living, it's vigour, it's young, it's beautiful. But this is a very important part of a person's life, and uh, we thank you very much indeed for the care that you both and uh, Craig Care Mornington are putting into all this. How do I then end up in your good hands? I'm ill, I'm deteriorating. What happens? How, how am I referred to Craig Care? What happens? So you can just give us a call uh, if you're in hospital or uh, uh, at your local GP. Your doctor may refer you to the aged care assessment team um, where you'll be visited and assessed for your care needs. If it's appropriate that you need some respite or some permanent care, um, you come and visit us. You have a look around, pop in whenever you feel like it. It's a bit crazy and family fun friendly down there. So just have a tour decide what you like and and if we suit your needs then you just come and stay with us it's really easy <laughs> so is it down to my choice or am i being referred to you how does it work um ryan it it, it is down to your choice uh, it's down to the individuals and the family's choice and to see if uh, that is what they want because uh, you might come over there and you might even say it's too friendly <laughs> and go away and say no I don't need something like this I need something a little bit more quieter so it might not be for you uh, but it is it is a fun place it is a very family oriented community uh, that we have at Mornington and um, it's up to each person and their family to decide.
So you are part of a franchise. Do I find Craig here all over Australia? This is you just you are just the local division. Yes, we're a big organisation. We have Craig Cares in uh, Victoria and in Western Australia. And it started here in Vic. Yes. And it moved to WA. Yes. So you're on a national expansion. Uh, possibly, yes. In the future, you'll have to speak to our head office about those plans. Is this um, is this part of the business plan that you do take it and it is the endorsement of the people that you're working with that you can expand like this, do you think? Is it something that Craig here, something special that you guys are offering that means it is successful? You mean the palliative toolkit? Yes, yes, what you're doing in yeah. terms of the area that you're operating in Craig Care. Yeah, so all of the Craig Cares um, have the tool that Ryan's developed and Ryan's educated all of the other sites and we all run the same systems and policies um, and we all work really hard. Uh, we're a, um, we have five sites in Victoria. Um, we meet regularly with each other and um, share ideas, um, improve our practice, work on how we can do it better next time, how we can, what we can achieve next year. So it's always growing clinical care. You're tuned up to RWPFM, your local radio station on 98.7 and 98.3. The Age Stage is the program that you're listening to, and I'm here with um, Sarah Mitchell and uh, Ryan Rodriguez. We're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is RWPFM 98.7 and 98.3. The Age Stage is the program that you're listening to this Thursday morning. I'm in the studio with uh, Ryan Rodriguez and Sarah Mitchell, both from Craig Care Mornington. And uh, we're congratulating uh, Ryan Rodriguez because he has come up with an end-of-life trajectory planning tool which is uh, improved and which is now basically part of the care process which is used in the palliative operations of Craig Care in both Victoria and Mornington. Guys, thank you very much indeed for spending some time with us. Um, before we send you on your way and back down to your wonderful patients, am I allowed to ask about any extraordinary you were talking before Sarah about a particular gentleman that you saw off in wonderful form have there been any transforming moments that you have had with some of the patients that you've worked with over the years have there been little events that have just made you think my goodness there's more to heaven and earth than is dreamt of in my philosophy oh gosh there are um Gosh, when I started um, in this role at Craig Care Mornington about four years ago, uh, we were early in our palliative journey and we have really amazing staff, consistent staff that have been there for a long time. So when they run to your door and say, quick, come, something's different, you know, you get up and you go because the staff know their residents, they they care they spend every day with them so there have been times over the years when someone's taken a turn really quickly um, but having all of the processes in place and the consistent staff has made uh, it much easier to stop everything you you know you can think you start your day starting with something and all of a sudden you've spent eight hours um, coordinating um, something in an emergency and the way we all pull together is I'm really proud of that um, because sometimes there are palliative processes that even though we're as organised as we are, sometimes it needs two or three registered nurses pulling brain power together. Um, you know, um, our doctors are amazing down there at Mornington. We use local doctors and they're very, very accessible to us. So um, they're always available if we say, hey, it's not quite the way we thought it was going to go. Uh, can you come down and see? Or what about this idea? 
we all work really well together. What about you, um, uh, Ryan? I'm thinking about the human experience. You said that uh, you trained in other parts of medicine, but you were drawn to palliative care. Have there been any moments which has made you reflect on you, your life, your life's journey, and what this means, this this life? Um, I think I, I've i looked at that uh, quite uh, in depth, actually, over the last few years while working, um, because I see that uh, people come into this world with dreams and ideas, and uh, when people go away, uh, from it, they have just that small part of that life that they lived, um, and they are scared of the abyss. You know what's going to happen in the future, and um, to me, it has changed the way I look at life. Uh, my uh, my journey through life is not so much focused around me, but it's focused around serving other people. Uh, it is about giving to the community, giving to the people what I have been so privileged to receive. Uh, while I have, you know, worked in the system, um, Sarah and myself, um, Sarah knows uh, we travel abroad to do mission trips. So we go to less privileged countries. Uh, me and my wife, um, just to my wife organizes these trips where she we go overseas to uh, different countries and uh, we provide healthcare needs. We take a medical team with us and run clinics uh, on the spot uh, where they are for maybe five days, ten days. People f- come from all over uh, the, the town that they are in. Uh, the uh, last year, no, the year before that, um, I took my 11-month-old child with us for one of these mission trips. Um, and uh, they, uh, we were able to address medical needs on top of a mountain. So we climbed up a mountain to get to this place in the Philippines um, just to... Uh, reach out to these people who had lumps and did not have the, uh, you know, the medical uh, medical needs met for these people. And uh, it was really heartwarming to see uh, that. And I've learned that through my experience at Aged Care, to see that people who have served and who have had that rich experience of people and helping other people go away with the greatest memories. Um, and because when you come to aged care, you come there and you have lost everything that you have had over the years. You come to that stage, people come and be like, I, I'm clinging on uh, to my family. Uh, I'm clinging on to my house. I'm clinging on to these earthly possessions that we have, uh, not realizing that it all goes away at the end. And when you're at death door, there's nothing more uh, than you thinking, what do I believe in? What did I live my life for? And how uh, has that impacted the world at large? Um, that's what I take away from it. Sarah, you too. Uh, is it reaffirmed a belief system that you might have in something more than just this reality? No, it reaffirms my belief in good people looking after others, and that we all need each other. It's a fantastic philosophy. You two, thank you so much indeed for joining us today. Um, Sarah Mitchell, thank you very much indeed. Ryan Rodriguez, thank you very much indeed. And can we pass on our very best wishes to everyone at Craig Care, Mornington. And Ryan, once again, congratulations on your end-of-life trajectory planning tool. 
Who knew that in fact it involved so much and there is indeed a whole world of possibilities that this tool addresses. We thank you for your time. You're tuned up to RPPFM. This is The Age Stage. And when we come back, Damien Flenley on the intervention of technology improving lives and perhaps restoring memory for those of us that might be struggling a little bit in our later lives. Interesting stuff on the other side of the break. Well, time to welcome uh, Damien Flenley back to the uh, Bendigo Bank studio, medical reporter for the Age Stage. And Damien, great to have your company. It's great to have be around. Um, last week, we were talking about senolytics and the way these new anti-aging drugs are basically cleaning up the debris, the plaque and the protein, which is a consequence of cell division. Yeah. That's a pharmaceutical um, solution, it would seem, to ageing. Yes, yes. And to add to that from last week, I mean, the Austin Hospital are currently doing a bit of uh, medical trials with some of those uh, senolytic drugs. Wow. The tails to break down some of the amyloid plaques that occur within the brain structures to enable that better resource. Um, the people who want to get involved can contact Alzheimer's Australia and they can maybe participate in those sort of conversations. So this could be an absolutely amazing breakthrough. So just to repeat basically what the pharmacists are doing and the scientists are doing, they're basically just clearing up the debris uh, that is the consequence of the cell division at the brain cell. You get rid of the debris and the sort of toxic byproducts of that division, which gets worse over age, and all of a sudden your brain cells are recommunicating again. Yeah, well, these sort of uh, you know toxins you talk about, they sort of create blockages within that neural pathways. Yeah. Everyone understands how dopamine and serotonin work, where they have to have these neurotransmitters that connect with each other. Um, these particular drugs or these particular byproducts of our normal existence, uh, they say with particular diets, it can be uh, increased or ageing, and some people have a high predisposition to these amyloids. Uh, they actually call it like a blockage. It's like a speed hump that keeps occurring regularly within your brain. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's not at the moment, uh, unfortunately, an exact science as well, because I've read of some research overseas whereby people with these blockages do seem to have great cognition. Other people without them have poor cognition so it's 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 still very early days but the good thing is the synolytics seem to be doing something and oh yeah, absolutely and this is why we're getting to human phase trials now so they worked wow. in mice and rats and now we're bringing it over to certain populations of humans to get the best out of it to find out what type of person these drugs particularly benefit from isn't that amazing? It's I mean, tremendous all, stuff. All of a sudden, here we are in the 21st century, beginning to realise maybe uh, that we can start intervening and we can cure one of these great things. Um, okay, so that then basically was a pharmaceutical solution, which is ongoing, and as you say, right here in Melbourne, these synolytics are being Absolutely. Tried. That is absolutely genius. But there's also new stuff coming out that you were going to talk about today. Indeed. So while all that is going on, we're now getting a sort of a technological intervention whereby we're using electrical stimulation in different parts of the brain, which we can probably now administer at great and very precise levels, mm. to hit a reset button and resync certain parts of the brain because these apparently go out of sync as we get older. Yeah, yeah. Restoring short-term memory. Well, this is part of that sort of build-up. We don't know exactly why amyloids build up in particular parts of the brain or why those connections get lost exactly. Amyloid, those uh, analytics work in some part of that process. But 
for some other people, just pure stimulation can be the breakthrough that occurs. So, you know, whenever I think of stimulation, I always think of those sort of 1930s movies with these crazy crackpot sort of scientists sort of, you know, screaming and cackling into the night. But uh, essentially, this is sort of a, a helmet which goes over the sort of frontal cortex. They stimulate for up to 25 minutes. And the extraordinary thing is, once they hit the reset button with these Alzheimer's patients, they've suddenly got the cognition and the thinking capacity of a 20-year-old. It's like a baseball cap. I know we've talked about it previously on some of the other RPP shows, but bringing it to the age stage is so terribly important for the fact that it's almost like a baseball cap that people place on their head. This baseball cap it gets, gets into my wheelhouse, really, of defibrillators and pacemakers, but the realities are it's a stimulation cap. It's like a TENS machine for your head that actually enables um, small electric shocks to occur within that prefrontal and the uh, temporal cortex. So that's just above your ear and just above your eyes. To actually create that stimulus, it actually stimulates that frontal lobe, which is where, as we understand, most of our short-term and some of our ongoing memory exists. It's got a cracker of a phrase. It's a high-definition transcranial altering current stimulation device it'll probably help you change the tv channel too <laughs> I look it is early stages but i mean it's terribly exciting to realize that um, by stimulating the right part of the brain whether it be through some sort of ect therapy which people may have been familiar with psychotrauma in the past but otherwise just electrical stimulation in a smaller simpler and controlled fashion can actually work particularly well in your short-term memory it is amazing and we're just about to hear actually after we finish up this segment i've mm. got a piece um, from the british broadcaster sue arms strong mm. uh, she's just written a book called borrowed time mm. and she's making the point that old age is being redefined as a disease and yeah. she thinks that's important because if it's redefined as a disease with symptoms like alzheimer's or parkinson's or memory loss mm -hmm. the big pharmaceuticals are going to spend even more money on treating the disease of old age well pharmacists and uh, technological companies they tend to follow the numbers perhaps more than just the disease processes um there's nearly 350,000 Australians uh, suffering and living with dementia every day here. And it's about expected to explode in the next 10 years, as you would all probably appreciate. Um, look at the Alzheimer and Dementia Association of, of Australia and Victoria doing a tremendous job in enabling that current research to be brought to town, as also funding those research grants that are occurring at Austin, Royal Melbourne, and across the networks in St Vincent's. So, look, it's really worthwhile keeping in contact with your associations. It's really worthwhile maintaining maintaining that awareness of technology changing. We talk about ageing being a disease. It brings a whole new context to just uh, accepting that I'm old and I won't necessarily be functioning anymore. But the uh, amazing, amazing thing is that uh, not only will we be able to think longer and better, but we'll also probably be able to live longer as well because the senolytics, if they're cleaning up all this debris in terms of uh, cell division, means that we get to hang around a little bit longer and... and being part of society rather than being sitting somewhere um, in our reveries. Just tapping into that immense experience and those life skills that perhaps some of our younger colleagues don't have with regard to their resilience to such traumatic and stressful events, uh, perhaps we can all be used a little bit more. It sounds fantastic. Now, the other thing while I've got you here as well, Damien, you are our age stage medical <laughs> expert. Um, it's time to start thinking about those flu shots. I'm so glad you brought it up there, Brendan, because, you know, for our ageing population and our younger workforce... I mean, we just need people to be available and healthy. The flu shot and the flu itself, as people can know, can be quite debilitating. Put you in hospital, potentially, with pneumococcal and other strep infections can actually kill you. Can I be a bit of a... Um, be the protagonist. Can I? Can I? Um, 
you see, because I, I, I had, it's not about me, but I went the flu shot a couple of years ago. The yeah. doctor saying, you know, you're old man, get this. I did, and I had the most terrible night. I got the shakes, the hot sweats, just yeah. hated, and I resolved then never ever to take. And then I started thinking about it. How the hell can they create a flu virus which is mutated in the twelve months since they've been able to get it into the laboratory to give me? Um, uh, immunity to the latest virus, which has mutated in the last 12 months anyway. How does it work? Well, generally, the flu seasonal pathways that occur you know, globally due to the, the wind flows and the actions of birds migrating people mm. through transport, every organisation, every country has potentially a variation of the flu. Uh, we test that flu regularly, internationally part of the World Health Organisation. As a result, we keep track of the different strains of flu because it is quite an adaptable disease that will infection that basically continues to uh, evolve uh, like any good virus would uh, or bacteria would in this instance. Uh, as it does so, it changes and mutates and becomes more resilient to particular types of the strain. And as a result of us, we can't just give you an immunobooster that will give you every cover for every uh, known virus that exists. However, we can give you the most current. So the one that we produce here in Australia each year, and they do try immensely to keep up with the population demand. Last year there was an undersupply of the flu vaccination. Um, but we use last year's current trends in Asia for our own direct portion of uh, the flu. As a result of that, uh, we tend to get 80-90% of it correct. You are right, there are still some people who will get the flu, who will uh, develop flu-like symptoms after their flu jab, uh, but their recovery time will be immensely less. And this is the main issue that people need to realise, that if you do get the flu and you've had that booster shot, even though we might miss you know, 5 or 10% of the strain that's existing there, you'll still be covered to a point where your body will be able to resiliently trust and deal with its defence mechanisms and save you that potential life-threatening illness. See, that's why you're here, Damien. I <laughs> love the explanation and thank you so much for coming by the Eight Stage Studio. If people have those concerns, they really should speak to their GP and have those honest conversations because there's nothing better than having a good health professional advise you directly about your own individual care. Fantastic. Damien Flenley, the Age Stage medical expert, dropping by the Bendigo Bank studio this uh, Thursday morning. Damien, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. I look forward to sharing more health and medical tips across the peninsula. But it's, it's exciting times, isn't it? I mean, senolytics and now technological intervention as well, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. I mean, all of a sudden we appear to be on the verge of something pretty significant. Indeed, I think within our lifetime, in the next 10 years, things are going to change so dramatically for our ageing population, even uh, our younger population, that uh, we have an immense community responsibility to tap those resources and make sure we get the best for all of us. This is The Age Stage on RPPFM. Thanks very much for your company on 98.7, 98.3. When we come back, as I promised, we'll be speaking with or hearing from the British broadcaster Sue Armstrong in her new book, Borrowed Time. She makes uh, the suggestion that perhaps we should be redefining old age as a disease with symptoms to get the big pharmaceuticals spending some serious money, and I mean really serious money, to get this thing whipped once and for all. We'll be back in just a moment after the break. This is the Age Stage on RPPFM, sponsored by Australian Unity and Aftercare Australasia. Hi everyone, I'm Brendan Telfer. BBC Radio 4 this week interviewed British science writer Sue Armstrong, who has just published her new book. It's called Borrowed Time, in which she gives a very detailed scientific and medical explanation of ageing, why it happens and what happens when it does. And as we were just saying to Damien before the break, Sue asks whether ageing can be smoothed, stopped or cured as a disease, 
And that's the way that uh, people are beginning to look at it, she argues, with a number of symptoms associated with it. And if so, as we were saying to Damien, then perhaps an inducement for the big pharmaceuticals to really get into some research and throw some very big money at it. Drug treatments, of course, and also those drug treatments now beginning to show some very encouraging signs on reversing the process. Sue Armstrong, a guest on the BBC Radio 4 program, start of the week, and the interviewer, Andrew Marr. Borrowed time, the science of how and why we age. And it starts off with a very um, potent and striking idea, which is simply that we age because biologically we're designed to reproduce, and it's about DNA, and after we've reproduced, the rest is just junk. Yes, that's it's we're we're we've got a built it we've got built-in obsolescence and it's actually very interesting. This there are lots of different theories about why we age um, because it's still quite a contentious area, but this seems to be the sort of dominant thing, and it's called the disposable soma theory, um, which basically means built-in obsolescence. And what it says is that Mother Nature doesn't care a damn about us as individuals. Its main goal is to the survival of the species. So we are vehicles for the sperm and the egg which carry the genetic material which has to go on down the generations. So nature invests just enough maintenance and repair in us to last until we've... We can pass uh, on the until DNA. Until we pass them on. Funny then, kind of then mother. Then we run out. Funny yes. kind of mother, I'd say. Absolutely. But I shouldn't call it mother nature. I should just say nature. To, to focus in on particular, use the example of calcium, very interestingly, to explain SOMA. The, the soma theory just just remind us about calcium is really important in the early years it builds bone density it helps us grow and ultimately procreate and then it causes us problems in later life that's but that actually, doesn't matter that's not part of that same theory as i said there oh. are a whole lot of different oh, different theories that is something with an even worse name that's antagonistic oh. pleiotrophy <laughs> that's probably why i didn't say it <laughs> which is a horrible bit of jargon but what it means is that genes that have a really good role to play up until yeah. development after that, um, you know, it hasn't been weeded out because um, evolution can't really see you past uh, your, you know, once you've finished. But it must be part of disposable soma, he said. Well, yes. Because, because that explains why, after a certain point, things that were useful to us yes. until we meet and breed and, and, and pass on the DNA that can then become poisonous or damaging to us yeah. in later life. It's the same sort of thing, absolutely, that um, nature, evolution doesn't see, uh, it, it's not able to weed stuff out after, in the post-reproductive period. So some people have actually called the post-reproductive period a, a um, genetic dustbin, where all of these genes which might have had a good role then, and if they run on too far, mm -hmm. they can cause trouble, and they, they end up not being weeded out because evolution doesn't see you in the post-reproductive period. Your book is full of extraordinary characters, including Hayflick, um, and that's very important to the story. Let's talk about Hayflick and um, what he discovered about the way cells reproduce, because until he came along, it was assumed that cells kept reproducing endlessly. Absolutely. This was the dogma, and it had been for a long time, by somebody called Alexis Carroll. That was his theory, that if you gave um, cells the right nutrients or, and the right environment, they could go on forever, Im immortally. And Hayflick was a cell culturist, and he was working in Philadelphia at the Wistar Institute, and his job was to provide a whole lot of cells for um, virus research. And he noticed that 
that these lovely pristine cells which he got in his petri dish they did so many um, divisions and then they stopped and he saw this so often he thought this looks like a natural phenomenon and he they, tried to get that they published re- they, they multiply 50 times and then well, they stop or roughly. about that roughly yes I mean but yeah. they, they have a finite lifespan and then they stop and what was interesting was these cells didn't die off so it didn't look as though there was anything going wrong in his cell culture they just stopped dividing and um, it took a very long time for anybody to accept this because this had been the dogma that they could go on forever and it was technical and, error and the cells that them. can't carry on dividing and as it were have have stopped are called senescent cells they are. and at the risk of being controversial all of us around this table are crammed with senescent cells <laughs> we are and that is part of the story a very important part of the story of aging it's a massive part of the story of aging except for the fact that senescent cells are not synonymous with aging no. because they start right from the very beginning from because they're part of our a natural uh, protection against cancer and against uh, errors that are made in the DNA. Every time a cell divides, it has to copy its DNA and um, hive off the daughter cell. But over time, you're bound to make little errors. And so nature, again, Mother Nature, has um, we, we've got this strategy that you stop after a certain number of um, divisions and therefore there's, um, there's not so much danger of passing on harmful uh, mutations which might cause cancer or all kinds of other harmful things. And so so the cell stops and senescent cells have a role to play and then generally cleared away by the immune system regularly but as we get older the immune system begins to get old these cells are not cleared away properly so they accumulate and then they become dysfunctional and they become really bad news they leak out stuff which um, chews up the collagen which sticks our cells together and that's what causes wrinkles wrinkles and saggy bits and all that sort of stuff but they also prime the immune system they kept sending messages off to the immune system um, and they cause low grade grumbling inflammation which seems to be one of the great drivers of ageing. It's very interesting at the moment when you talk to anyone about science and medicine inflammation has become the thing that everyone is talking about massive, and focusing on at the moment massive it's even called they've even call it inflammaging now because it seems to be one of the key drivers of the aging process so if we now understand why cells age and how they age or at least a lot more about that are we any closer to stopping the mage or you know, moving back to pre-senescent cells? Massively, massively. They're doing it in the, in, the, uh, in, in the lab. They're doing it in the lab with, um, in petri dishes. They're also doing it in model organisms and so on. So there's a lot of evidence that the ageing process can be slowed and can be or ameliorated. And what's terribly important about this is that the single biggest risk factor for all the things that we know are pathological in, in ageing, you know, the dementias that Nikki's been talking about, uh, arthritis, heart failure, um, failure of eyesight and hearing, mm. all the things that we think of as the geriatric diseases. The single biggest risk factor for them is the ageing process itself. So, the, the, yes, everything. So, um, those diseases are, in fact, just the symptoms, the end stage of a pathological process. So if you can interrupt it earlier on, you can do stuff about so it. So there is great hope for, for the effects of ageing. We can't stop ageing. We can many of the effects of ageing. And towards the end of your book, you argue quite passionately for ageing to be treated as a disease. And this is really for financial reasons. Just explain. For financial reasons, but also to, for, for policy reasons. I mean, yes, you know, to go together. very, very little money is put into gerontology, which is the science of ageing. If you're trying to deal with ageing, money is put into geriatrics, which is dealing with the diseases. Um, so... Uh, 
Yes, but th- so that's one thing. It's very important so, for policymakers. But for the financial thing, yes, big big pharma is not going to get involved unless it sees aging as an intervention, a target for intervention. So to put it very simply, I'll say this two go together because if, as it were, the NHS says you have got this disease called aging, and we have drugs for aging, and we are going to treat your problem aging with these drugs, then the big pharmaceutical companies pour money in, and the drugs leap forward, and we're all better off. Absolutely, but this is classic preventive medicine, yeah. and you know it's. But it's it's a long way to to make people aware of what gerontology promises, and it's big. Sue Armstrong on the BBC Four program start of the week with presenter Andrew Ma, and we must acknowledge the BBC for the use of that interview. We thank them very much indeed. So certainly some provocative and some very interesting thinking there coming out of London. But that is it for this week on the Age Stage. You've been listening to the Age Stage, of course, and I would like to thank our guests before I go, Ryan Rodriguez and uh, Sarah Mitchell from Craig Care out of Mornington, the palliative care specialist. We thank them very much indeed for dropping by and once again congratulations to Ryan Rodriguez for that national award that he's just recently picked up. Um, also thanks to our resident uh, medical and science reporter and specialist Damien Flenley on the restoration of older people's memories. Some amazing stuff happening both not only in sort of pharmaceuticals but as we heard today in technology as well. And of course we must uh, thank the BBC for that Sue Armstrong interview with Andrew Marr. I'm Brendan Telfer. Thanks to our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. We will be back. The Age Stage will be back in seven days from now. We hope that you can tune in then. Thank you very much, Diffie Company. Speak to you soon. <laughs>